So a few weeks ago, Pastor Ed called and said, I think I'm going to do a series at the church on work. Would you mind doing the second installment of the series? And I, I'm a, an agreeable person. Everyone, everyone who knows me would say, that's, yeah, sorry. I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And so I got off the phone, and you know, a couple days later, I started reflecting on what I would say about work, and I realized I, I don't know what I would say about work. So then I really got serious about it. I really gave myself to thinking about it, reading about it, reflecting, reading scriptures, praying, read some more scriptures, read some books, read some articles. And the more I reflected and the more I thought and the more I would write, the more I realized that's not what I want to say. That's not what I want to say. And so I've come to the conclusion that there isn't much I can say. Now, I'm still going to try to say some things. I mean, so I'm not going to send you home right now. But this is an incredibly complex topic, at least for me. It's incredibly hard to find a way to speak to what it means to engage in your work as a Christian. Now, listen to Pastor Ed's podcast from last week. I completely agree with what he said. And what I'm saying today assumes that what he said is true. But I'm going to try to hit another note altogether right, from what he said. So I encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, listen to that. Although, I should warn you. How many of you were here last week? Do you remember this, the, the illustration that he gave at the end as a kind of, the kind of work you do? The story of the uncircumcised Philistine unnerved me a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. I did not know. I mean, a wonderful, wonderful example, right? But I nearly wrecked the car when I heard it. I thought, <laughs> because I was thinking, how am I going to get up and talk about work? Because everybody in the audience is gonna, still going to be thinking about the uncircumcised story from the previous week. And um, so... Try, to, try not to think about that, right? Try to keep that. The more I tell you not to, the more you're going to do it. So I, I, the, the truth is, though, I mean, for me to be transparent with you, is that I still don't know if what I'm saying to you is what I really want to say. Because this, this subject has turned me inside out. And I, I don't know how to speak to it exactly like I want to. So what I'm going to ask you to do is you give me the grace of knowing that what I'm saying, I'm saying tentatively. I'm saying this is, the best, this is the best way I can find to say it right now, but I trust that as we keep leaning into it and we keep reflecting on it, that there will be perhaps, hopefully, some more clarity that comes. If you do that, I promise not to tell a story about helping someone who's uncircumcised, right? So I'll do that for you. You do that for me, right? So deal. Thank you, Blaine. I appreciate that. Now, it's difficult to talk about work for lots of reasons. One, we'll look at some scriptures in a moment, but... It's also difficult because Christian history, the history of our traditions at least, is, is checkered about how to think about work. Let me just give you a couple of examples really quickly. The first is the reformers, 500 years ago, when they're reacting against what they see as corruption in the Catholic Church, one of the ways in which they make that critique is by appealing to Paul's distinction between faith and works, that we're saved by faith and we're not saved by works. And they have this kind of relentless attack on good works, but over the long run, one of the kind of unintended consequences of that attack on good works is that it started to, at least arguably, erode what we mean by work. If good works do nothing for us before God, then how do we make sense of work itself? How do we understand what the role of work is in relation to faith? And in many ways, I think our tradition is still confused about how to think about the relationship between faith and good works and what good works has to say about work. So we ended up with this kind of divide between our Christian life, the life of faith, and our worldly life, 
the life of work. And it was hard for us to always draw the lines between the two, to know exactly how they sort themselves out. Right? Another problem in, our, in closer to home for Pentecostals came when Pentecostal movement starts to emerge in North America and Europe in the early 1900s. It emerges among people who are expecting Jesus to return at any moment. In fact, that's how they understood the work of the Spirit in their life. So you, many of you will have been around Pentecostals and heard of this doctrine of tongues, right? This idea, practice and doctrine of speaking in tongues. Well, many of these Pentecostals, almost all of them, understood that to be a missionary language. That when they were speaking in tongues, they were speaking in Hindi. They were speaking in Dutch, right? Whatever the case, German, whatever the case might be, right? They're speaking some particular language and a particular dialect, right? That the Spirit was giving them so they could do missions, but when, and so many of these people emerge then as what are called missionaries of the one-way ticket. They have this spirit experience. They speak in some language, Spanish, say, and they say, well, then I have to find Spanish-speaking people that God is sending me to. And so they would sell their homes, quit their jobs, take their families, and move. Because they expected Jesus to come at any moment, and they saw this, this experience of the Spirit as a last-moment gift to prepare them for mission. Well, now we're 100 years out from that or more. And you can see how, as succeeding generations pass, it's become harder and harder for us to understand. What is the relationship between the gift of the Spirit and everyday life? So that in many of our Pentecostal traditions, we came to perfect the kind of altar call experience. But we didn't have any idea how to turn that out on Monday, Tuesday work experience. So this gap developed between what we experience kind of when we're in worship and what we experience out there in the quote-unquote real world. Another example of the same kind of problem is the ways in which for American Christianity, and Colton alluded to this just a moment ago, American Christianity is just so individualized. We think about what God is doing for us personally, what God is doing for me, what I get out of this or I get out of that. And so it becomes harder for us to think about our experience with God as always about other people, always about how we care for other people. So when we talk about work, we tend to talk about work in terms of what it means for me which may not actually be a very helpful way to think about what our calling is as it relates to work. So for these reasons and many, many more, I think work is very difficult. So you think, well, then let's turn to Scripture. Maybe if our, if our tradition, if our history is checkered, maybe if we'll just turn to Scripture, we'll find the answer there. Let's look and see. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to read a couple passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians and then 2 Thessalonians. This is a passage in which Paul is giving instructions about marriage, when to marry, when not to marry. And he says plainly, it's better not to marry. It's better not to marry. Which all the you know, teens and, and young unmarried folk, they're always troubled by that passage. But that's, I can remember as a kid, our church, we taught about the rapture all the time. And as a kid, I was so afraid that the rapture was going to happen before I got married. Right? That's the, that's the kind of fear you have when you're raised in the church the way I was. So... 1 Corinthians 7 was a passage we wanted to avoid. But let's look at this for a moment. I want you to see what Paul argues here. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none. Some of you wives are thinking your husband has been reading 1 Corinthians 7. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no possessions. And then he sums it up. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, now stop for a moment and think about what Paul is saying. Be married, but live as if you're not married. 
Rejoice, but rejoice as if you're not rejoicing. Sorrow, but sorrow as if you're not sorrowing. What does that mean? What is he saying? Be worldly, but as if you're not worldly. Engage in your work, but don't really engage in your work. What, what does this mean? Well, he says, I say this to you to relieve your anxiety. Right? This is the next passage of scripture. He's made this clear. This is how I want you to live in the world. I just want you to be free from anxiety, he says. Well, I can feel my anxiety going up. The more I reflect on what he's trying to say, what do you mean? How do I live in the world and not live in the world? Right? I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about... Is, anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. Now, I have to say, Paul must have known different people than I know. I would have to say, most of the unmarried men that I know, that, that I wouldn't characterize them as most of all anxious about the Lord, and I don't know that all the married men I know are most of all anxious about pleasing their wife, but Paul was luckier than we are in terms of the people that he met. Right? So the unmarried, they're able to give themselves to the work of the Lord, and the mar- I, see, I got six hours of sleep. I'm in a good mood, right? The, but the married man is concerned about pleasing his wife. And he says his interests, the married man's interests, are divided. Are divided. Divided between the work of the Lord and the work that he has to do in the world. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. So here we've turned to scripture, we've asked the question, what does scripture say about work? And what we hear is something like, work as if you are not working. Because what really matters is unhindered devotion to the Lord. Right? So just kind of hold that and let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This, is, this passage that we're about to read was written by the same man roughly at the same time, maybe a few months, as much as a couple of years is separated from what he had written to the Corinthians. But listen to what he says to them. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. And we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right to expect you to care for us, to support our ministry, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. And every dad has said this to his teenage son at some point. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Now do you you hear the tension? To the Corinthians, who were already hyper-spiritual, he says, work as if you are not working. Live in the world as if you are not living in the world. And to the Thessalonians, he says, be worldly. Don't eat bread you, won't, you haven't paid for. Work night and day if you have to work night and day to be able to buy the bread you need. Don't be lazy. Don't be idle. Work your jobs quietly. Now, which is it, Paul? Do you want us to work our jobs quietly? Do you want us to earn the money we need working night and day so we can pay for our bread and not be a burden to anyone? Or do you want us to live with unhindered devotion to the Lord? 
How can you on the one hand tell me not to have my interests divided between the kingdom and the world, and on the other hand say, God wants you to just work quietly with your hands? And the good news or the bad news is both are scripture for us. And there is no third scripture that tells us how to resolve the tension. This is why talking about work is so difficult. I stole this analogy from Pastor Ed. I have, you know, three young kids. And when kids are just, just learning to do puzzles, the first puzzle you buy them, you know, they're like four pieces to the puzzle. You know what I'm talking about? And it's already cut out. So you have a banana and a butterfly and an apple and a caterpillar, right? And then you have these little stems on the puzzle pieces and you pull them out and you put it in the baby's hand and the baby's supposed to put it in there and they, they, all, they, they recognize where it goes. The butterfly goes here, but it can't quite get it in. You know, you understand, the motor skills are developing still. I think a lot of us want scripture to be like that. Right? We've got this problem of what do we think about work? Well, that's, that's the caterpillar. So we look over here in 1 Corinthians 7 and we find the way that it fits. Settle the issue. The Bible says X, I believe X, that settles it. On to the next topic. But the Bible doesn't work like that. The Bible isn't a four-piece puzzle for toddlers. It doesn't function like that. What it gives us is all kinds of witnesses about how we're supposed to respond to work, and those witnesses stand in tension with each other. Now, why would God give us a text like that? Why wouldn't he just tell us plainly, this is the way I want you to think about work? Well, it must be because we don't need to have some kind of clarity about how we're to think about work. We're supposed to learn something in the midst of trying to make sense of what we're called to do in our specific circumstance. Now, what does this look like, actually? I'm going to give you kind of three core claims. Really, this is a three-point sermon. I'm going to give you them all at once, and then I'm going to unpack them a bit at a time, and we'll reflect on some of the scriptures together. And I hope by the time I'm done, you get a sense of why I don't think clarity is what's possible in this situation. And yet, it is possible to be faithful. I don't think we're going to have clarity about how to think about how our job relates to our calling, how being in the world relates to being in the kingdom. I don't think we'll have clarity, but I think we can find ways to be faithful. So here's the first, here's the first of those, and we'll read them all together all at once, and then I'll unpack them. So this is the first. Christians are called for the world's sake to model a peculiar alternative way of living, an alternative. It's, it's against what's native or natural for us. And Christians are called to this kind of peculiar life. Christians are meant to be strange. Now, I don't mean weird in a kind of hyper-charismatic way, you know, where God speaks to you and you see purple-robed angels. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about this kind of way in which you don't quite fit into the way the world is patterned, right? That kind of peculiarity. Given that that's true, Christians must work and talk about work in peculiar ways. If we're going to be faithful, we're going to speak faithfully about work, it's going to sound odd. That oddness has to be there. Second claim, as resident aliens, and that's what Christians are, right? We don't belong, we're not of this world, but we're in the world. Our citizenship is in heaven, Colossians says, and yet we live here, right? As resident aliens, we always bear both ultimate and penultimate responsibilities. In other words, responsibilities that are in the kingdom, that are ultimate, that are the most important, and then worldly responsibilities that are not most important, but they're right next to the most important. So we bear both responsibilities, always at once. And many times, those responsibilities come into conflict. Not always, but many times, what God is requiring of you and what is required of you on Monday at, at your work is going to be in conflict. And how do we sort that out? 
Well, we must bear the brunt of the contrast between the politics of God's kingdom and the politics of the world. That the Christian life is a life in which the drama of the conflict between the inbreaking kingdom and the world as it is plays out over and over and over again. Let me give you one quick example. Think about Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. Right? Philemon has a slave, a servant, named Onesimus, who flees. Right? Finds Paul. Paul leads him to know Jesus. Onesimus is transformed. And then Paul sends him back to Philemon with a letter. Now, this is the tension. Philemon has worldly responsibilities. And part of his investment is in the work of Onesimus. And this slave has abandoned him. And yet what Paul writes back to make clear is, don't receive him as a servant. Receive him as a brother. That's the tension that's there. And in this case, he's requiring him to rethink his entire economic system in light of what God has said about this man Onesimus. That's the kind of thing that has to play out over and over and over and over again in our lives. Third, final claim. Our ultimate responsibility is to bring Sabbath to bear. So our lives have to be marked by holy irresponsibility. Now let me unpack what I mean by holy irresponsibility. I'm not trying to be cute with this parenthetical mark. What I'm trying to do is show that to be faithful, we're going to have to talk about responsibility and irresponsibility at the same time because I think that's what marks the Christian life. From the world's perspective, Christians are people who are responsible until they aren't. We work hard with our hands. We collect money. We, we concerned about our future. We're concerned about our children's future. We're concerned about the people around us. We work hard. We collect. We save. Until God says give. And then we give. And if what God demands of us doesn't make worldly sense, if it seems irresponsible, then so be it. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And part of being a Christian is to live in the world, aware of the realities of the world, yielded to them until the moment in which God's claim trumps that. Think about the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he is perfectly responsible. He's the ruler of a synagogue, so he's taken as a religious authority. He's wealthy and he's kept all the commandments. And he's coming to Jesus to find out, is there any kind of responsibility that I haven't? met yet and what does Jesus say to him give everything up be irresponsible give everything away and start to follow me again you can see the ways in which and that's why the man goes away sorrowful because he had learned a certain kind of responsibility that he wouldn't surrender for Jesus sake and part of following Jesus is being willing to be responsible until he calls you to be what the world will always see as irresponsible Think about 18-year-old girl. I have, I have a, a, a woman that I've come to know in the last few years. She's in her 80s now and pastors a small church in Alabama. When she was 18 years old and she was in Bible college, she felt like God called her to leave Bible college and go to Africa as a missionary. She's a young, beautiful, single, 18-year-old girl who feels the call of God to go to Africa. Her denomination wouldn't support her. Her parents didn't support her. She had no friends to support her. But she went anyway. You know what everyone around her was saying? The denomination was saying? Her friends were saying? Her family was saying? This is irresponsible. But the fruit of her life suggests that it was, in fact, God's call on her life. Think about someone like St. Francis of Assisi, whose family is wealthy. And what does he do? He throws it all away. 
Because some of what it means to follow Jesus is to know when he's requiring you to be irresponsible. And so everyone around, to be a Christian is to live the kind of life that makes a lot of sense until it doesn't. Where did that come from? Why would you do that? And that has to, that kind of, that has to mark our life as well. Now let's unpack each one of these a little bit before we move on. Turn to Hebrews 2 for a moment, or look on the screen if you want to follow there. Christians, this is the first statement, Christians are peculiar. I mean, we're called to a peculiar way of life. And what makes us peculiar, I think, is our awareness that God has acted so decisively in Jesus that the world is never going to recover from it. Hebrews frames it this way, Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews appeals to Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, the psalmist, of course, everyone knows this psalm, The heavens are wonderful. I look at the heavens. It overwhelms me. And I think, what is a human being? And yet you've made human beings just a little lower than the angels. And you've put all things under their feet. And in Psalm 8, that's all in the past tense. But the writer of Hebrews takes up that passage and says, actually, we don't see that. We don't see human beings enthroned over all things. Human beings continue to suffer, continue to die. The ground continues to resist to bring fruit, even when humans are working with all of their might. We don't see humans enthroned over creation. But, the writer says, we do see Jesus. So to be a Christian is to be confident that God has acted in Jesus. And even though my life may not show that evidence, I trust what God has done in Jesus more than what I'm experiencing. Now I'm going to say something to you here that's going to seem, if not blasphemous, at least bizarre. We don't trust God because of what God has done for us. We trust God because of what God has done for Jesus. We don't trust God because of what happens in our lives. We trust God because of what's happened in Jesus' life. Because Jesus has passed through death, through hell, out the other side of death into new creation. He has been given a name that is above every name. He is in the fullness of all that God means. But we still tend toward death. So when we stand at the grave of a loved one, whether it's someone who lived a long, full life or someone who died tragically, when we stand by that grave, we don't say we know God will raise the dead because we've seen God raise the dead. We say we know God raises the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. And our trust is that what God has done for Jesus, he's going to do for all of us. And that what Jesus has already experienced, we're going to experience. And not just us, but all things. That's why our hope is not hope if it's seen. That's what Paul says. Hope that is seen is not hope. But we have hope that what God has done for Jesus is going to happen to us. Now think about how peculiar that makes us. How odd that makes us to live in the world that seems to dispute the lordship of Christ. Everything around us, suffering, injustice, war, famine, political intrigue, personal betrayal. All of these things seem to say God is not on his throne. But we see Jesus. And we know that what he has done for Jesus, he's going to do for us. And so we're the people who stand in the teeth of the evidence and say, someday what God has done for Jesus, he's going to do for all of us. And we live our lives accordingly. We're a little bit, how many of you read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's novel, the fantasy novels? You remember the kids there, the Pevensey kids? I mean, they live in England, and then they go to Narnia, and then they come back to England. We're sort of like that. Except I think it's more like this. We're like Englanders who know someone who's been to Narnia. And it keeps shaping our lives because we know that what we see isn't what's really going on. 
And we keep talking about these things. And guess what people think? They think we're fantasizing. They think we're dreaming. They think that we're using religion to comfort ourselves. But it's just that the Spirit has moved us in such a way that we're persuaded that there is a Narnia, that there is an Aslan, or to shift out of that language, that there is a Jesus whom God did raise from the dead, and what God has done for him, he's going to do for us. And we don't recover from that conviction. So everything we encounter, every injustice we see, every bit of sorrow we enter, every death we encounter, we say in the face of all of that, someday it will be made known that what God has already done for Jesus, he's going to do for us. That can't help but make us strange. So let me unpack a little bit of the second statement. You're thinking, yeah, this is really strange. I mean, I'm, I'm making a good point there, I think, about just by embodying this. We, we bear both ultimate and penultimate responsibilities. To, to be these kinds of people, to be Christians who live in the world but not of the world, means that we always have, as I've said, ultimate responsibilities. What does the kingdom require of us? And penultimate responsibilities. What does the world require of us? How many of you have heard sermons on Mary and Martha? Right? Being a Mary in a Martha world. But the truth is, we can't choose to be Mary instead of choosing to be Martha. Because to be a Christian is to always, always be both Mary and Martha. We are all, I mean, notice the text. The text says that Martha was doing what she had to do. There's a guest in her home. It's Jesus. And she's going to make bread for him. She's responding to the kinds of commands we see in 2 Thessalonians 3. Work with your hands, provide bread, care for those who need. That's what she's doing, and that's what she has to do. And yet in that moment, Mary is the one who Jesus says she's chosen the one thing that is needful. So being a Christian is not about choosing to be Mary instead of Martha. It's about knowing when to let Mary lead the dance and when to let Martha lead the dance. Because we're always both Mary and Martha. And there's no way around that. So think of it like this. How many of you have ever encountered anyone, I've been this person, who tried to use the calling of Mary to avoid having to do responsibilities of Martha? Right, go to Bible college. Like Almost everyone there is trying to use the call to follow Jesus as a way of not being responsible. I don't mean to be cynical, but yeah, it's kind of true. right? So there's a way in which we can say, well, Jesus has called me to this. Yeah, but it's time for you to go in the kitchen and make bread. You have guests. And there are other people who are trying to be Martha to avoid the call of being Mary. They keep saying, well, I, I, I feel this draw to prayer, but I, really don't, I don't have time to give myself to that. I have all of these responsibilities. But being faithful means you follow the leading of the Spirit so that you know in this moment I have to be Martha. And Mary the Mary part of me is background to that. And I'm praying in my spirit even while I'm being Martha. And other times I have to let Mary take the forefront. And Martha remains in the background, grounding that prayer in the world. But sometimes I'm more Mary than Martha and sometimes I'm more Martha than Mary, but I'm always both. That's what it means to live in this world. Again, that's odd. Again, that's going to seem at times like irresponsibility. But what we trust is that as we live together in community and as our character is shaped to be like Jesus, we get a better sense of when to shift from one to the other. We get a sense of how the dance is supposed to go. I want you to think for just a moment about a spectrum. And on this end, there's a, there's a little bit of area that's just black. And all the rest of the spectrum is gray. 
That spectrum represents the way our worldly responsibilities relate to our heavenly calling, to our responsibilities in the kingdom. There are some jobs that are on this end of the spectrum, they're in the black. You just don't do them. Right Right now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're being paid to kill people for the Tulsa Mafia, I just want to come to tell you that's not allowed. Right? That's not allowed. We have clarity about that, right? That's not allowed. There are other such things. If you, you know, if you're into, let's see, what's, what would be an example of something you're just not allowed to do? You know, if you're dogfighting, right? Stop that, right? Being a Christian, you don't get to do that, right? That's on that end of the spectrum. But notice, there's no white into the spectrum. There are no jobs in this world that are so clearly related to our calling in God that there's no trouble with them. And let me say just something quickly about religious calling. Pastors, worship leaders, children's pastors, counselors, professors at seminaries. Those are in some ways the most dangerous jobs on the spectrum. Because it's easy for us to see the jobs that are in the black. Don't do those. Don't sell drugs in the name of Jesus. Right? We understand that. <laughs> Right, watch Breaking Bad, right? Don't do that. Don't, don't start cooking meth so you can raise money for missions, right? That's black. This is a spinoff of Breaking Bad. I'm developing it right now. That's on this end of the spectrum. But it's really, really easy to think that there's something like that on this end of the spectrum. That if I'm pastoring a church, then my job isn't just a job. This is what God has called me to do. But it is so easy for these jobs, the jobs that seem to be on this end of the spectrum, to turn into a kind of work that takes us far from the heart of the Father. Let me give you two quick examples. Think about the prodigal son and the elder son. The prodigal son goes into the far country, remember? The older son stays home in the field, right? And when the story plays out, what we see is that the elder son is further from the father's heart than the younger son ever could have been. Because there's something about working in the field, preaching and singing and counseling and leading that starts to erode the sense of what really matters. And there's nothing more dangerous than being engaged in Christian work and thinking that that work isn't itself part of this world. There's this haunting story in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 44, about these Levite priests who had failed to represent God's name rightly. And this is what he says about them. Going into the future... I will continue to allow you to do the work of the tabernacle, of the temple. You continue to offer the sacrifices, but you cannot draw near my presence. That's what I'm more than anything afraid of for myself. Is that a year from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I'll still be teaching in the seminary. I'll still be speaking, if not at sanctuary after this sermon, probably not. Wherever I'm speaking. I'm, I'm, but I'm just cutting up animals. I'm not really in the presence anymore. We have to fear that. But wherever you are on that spectrum, if you're not in the black, and I'm just going to assume you're not, then understand that it's never going to be clear in your life, neatly clear, what's the relationship between the job you're doing and what God has called you to do. You're always going to have to be in the dance of when to be Martha and how to let Mary take the lead. That's always going to be there. Last point. John chapter 5. Our ultimate responsibility then is to bring Sabbath to bear. In John chapter 5, we read the story of Jesus healing this man. He healed him on the Sabbath day, told him to walk, take up your bed and walk. And of course, as we see in verse 16, the Jews started persecuting Jesus. They attack him. 
because he was doing such things on the Sabbath day. And notice Jesus' response. Verse 17, Jesus says, my father is working to this, to this point and continues to work. Now think about this. Where did these enemies of Jesus get the idea that on the Sabbath you don't work? They got it from scripture, no? They opened their Bibles and saw the story of God who's working, 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 and working, and then resting. And so they were committed to Sabbath as a way of saying there's a time when you don't work. You don't do any kind of work, including this kind of work of healing people. But what Jesus says is you don't understand what resting means for God. Resting just means God is doing a different kind of work, a deeper kind of work. And I bring that with me. In other places, when Jesus was confronted with this accusation, he would say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, which we often misunderstand to mean I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can do what I want. The rules don't apply to me. But that's not what he means. What he means is I bring Sabbath with me. And no matter where I am and no matter whom I'm encountering, I have Sabbath with me. That's what you have with you. Now, the Sabbath is not the kingdom. The Sabbath is our glimpse in this life of what God will, want, what God will make the world to be in the end. And you carry Sabbath in you and with you. So wherever you are on this gray spectrum, whatever it is you're doing, whether you're working as an orderly in a hospital or you're working as a teacher in school, you're an architect or a painter or a poet, whatever it is, your question is, how do I bring Sabbath to bear with these worldly responsibilities? How do I bring Sabbath with me so that people I encounter get hope of the kingdom? 1 Timothy chapter 6, stand with me if you will. 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is the passage about the love of money being the root of all evil, and we kind of avoid that like the plague. But at the end of that section, Paul says this to the rich. He says, those who are rich in this life, those who are rich in this life, tell them to be rich in good works. Tell them to be generous. Because when they live in this way, two things happen. They store up for themselves treasure in the world to come. They store up for themselves treasure in the world to come. And they lay hold of the life that is truly life. And this is the image that I want to leave you with. You are the Sabbath bringers. God has planted you in the world as Sabbath bringers. And what Sabbath means is that you live here between Narnia and England. You live between what has already happened to Jesus and what is yet to happen to the rest of the world. And you reach forward into the new creation and you lay hold of the life that is truly life. And you reach over and you lay a hold of this life that the world calls life that's just empty and vain. And you pull them together. And every time you bring Sabbath to bear, what you're doing is bringing heaven and earth to touch, which is what he's going to do in the end. When he puts all things right and he reconciles all of these tensions and he makes it clear that what he's done for Jesus is for everyone and everything. What we get to do now, every time we bring Sabbath to bear, is we bring a little bit of that heaven into our reality. Just a glimpse, but a glimpse. That's what you're called to do. That's what I'm called to do. And that's what the Spirit empowers us to do. Let me pray a blessing over you. God, thank you for calling us to do this work. 
Spirit, empower us to lean into this work. Teach us how to discern what it is that we can do in any given moment, whether it's by being Martha or by being Mary. Teach us what we can do to bring Sabbath to bear. And even the most mundane, seemingly meaningless moment, God, help us to know that in that moment, your still small voice is speaking to us about how to bring Sabbath to bear. And who knows what good can come of that. Help us to have our imaginations enlarged and transformed. We pray for this in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.